Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I am so thrilled to welcome Sean Desai, Associate Head Coach for Defense for the Seattle Seahawks. Sean has over a decade of experience as a coach at the NFL and collegiate levels. He served on the Chicago Bears staff for eight years, initially serving as a defensive quality control coach before coaching safeties. He became the first Indian American NFL coordinator in history when he became defensive coordinator for the team in 2021. Sean joined the Bears in 2013 after spending the 2012 season as the running backs coach and special teams coordinator at Boston College. Prior to his time at BC, in 2011, he served as assistant director of football operations at the University of Miami. And before this experience, he spent five seasons at Temple as a defensive and special teams coach. While at Temple in 2010, he was one of the youngest coordinators in the country at age 27. After graduating from Boston University, where he was initially pre-med, Sean earned a master's in higher and post-secondary education at Columbia University before moving on to Temple, where he earned his doctorate in educational administration. Sean's journey through coaching is unprecedented for Trailblazers, and for that reason and many, many more, I'm so thrilled to have him join us today. Thanks for coming on, Sean. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you played football in high school, and there's these incredible stories about how you would drill your brother and younger cousins after school in your backyard, showing these early inclinations of wanting to become a coach. Can you speak to those adolescent experiences? I mean, when did you realize you wanted to pursue coaching as a career? Yeah, I mean, growing up, you know, at one point we grew up with 11 people in my house. Oh, wow. My dad and two of his brothers. My cousins were living all there. And so it was obviously a house full of love and really a house full of competition. You know, I had two older cousins, my younger brother, and then eventually my other younger cousin came along. And it was all about competition and playing sports. And we were kind of doing everything together. And so... That was my first real introduction to sports and really competing. And then kind of as you grow and you go through high school and all those experiences and playing football in high school, then my brother started playing when I was a senior and then I graduated, he became a freshman. And that's really when I started coaching a little bit. I started working with the freshman team after I graduated high school during that summertime. And that was my first taste of coaching. And I fell in love with it. I just loved the teaching aspect of it and I loved interacting with the guys on a different level and really working with people from all different backgrounds. Wow. So as I mentioned, you played football in high school and you actually coached your high school's freshman team while you were a student at Boston University. At this point, it's still a bit of a side gig. When does it start to become the real deal? So when I was there, like you said, I was coaching with the freshman team and kind of going back and forth every few weekends. It was gave me an opportunity to go home and see my brother play and keep coaching. So that was like the first inclination. And then I would say it didn't really become real until I got to Temple because after I graduated at Boston University, I went to Columbia to get my master's, like you said, and I did a project there where I shadowed the football coach and it was for one of my classes. And so I'd done that and there was still like a little bit of itches of, hey, I want to do this. 
but I don't know if it can be real. So I got to make sure I got my plan B in line for what my career really needs to be. And so I did that and that worked out great. And I graduated there and went to Temple to get my doctorate. And so at that point, I'm you know pretty much full-fledged in on this doctorate. And then actually one of the coaches that I volunteered with at Columbia got hired in December at Temple, ironically. And so I just emailed him and said, hey, can I come? I'm here. Can I volunteer with you guys? And at that point, they were looking for free work. You know, They were looking for anybody that can come help. And so they said, okay, started off as an academic graduate assistant because they knew my background. And eventually just while I'm getting my doctorate, got promoted to these different roles. And eventually, like they say, the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. That must have been some cold email you sent. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to take your shots. And even I remember even while I was at Columbia and even at BU, I'd send out emails randomly to different coaches. At Columbia, I sent letters out to all 32 NFL teams and obviously didn't get hit. I didn't have any experience. I didn't really have a resume at that time, but you got to take your shots and it didn't work. But over time, it did. Wow. That's a, I think, powerful lesson in continuing to take those shots because as long as one hits, it can jumpstart your career. Yeah, there's no doubt. That's kind of been my story is you got to take your shot when you can. Yeah. So it seems like there's this huge inflection point for you in 2006 with Satyan Bhakta, the Temple Owls, and the Fab Five. Can you explain what all of those mean for our audience and sort of your backstory behind getting this bigger start in football? Yeah. So like I said, I was volunteering at Temple. I was getting my doctorate there. And then the new head coach, Al Golden, gets hired. And he's kind of just building his staff. And Satyan Bhakta, the name that you mentioned, he was on the previous staff. And he got kind of held over. As a graduate assistant, he was doing the academic graduate assistant work and he got promoted to a defensive graduate assistant. So then the head coach said, the only way I'm promoting you is if you find your replacement. Wow. And I was down the hall volunteering. And he asked me if I want to be his replacement. And I said, yeah, I'll be your replacement. So that was really the first access point into it. And it was right timing, right place, right organization, new staff, everything kind of fell into place there. That's all I need is an entry point because otherwise I didn't have any access to these types of jobs. I didn't play college football. I didn't do any of the stuff that traditionally people do to get these jobs. So I've noticed that's a familiar theme. We had 49ers president Brag Marate on the podcast a few seasons ago, and he seemed to emphasize the same thing that you do, which is you weren't born into a football family. You don't have this pedigree, which in this industry makes a huge difference. How did you think about that when you were up and coming? Did you feel like it was this massive obstacle in your way? I would say, yes, it was an obstacle. I probably didn't reflect on it maybe as much as I should have. Because when you're in the moment, you just kind of work and you're trying to prove yourself every day. And that's really what it was. And my opportunity came through academics, which has been my background. And that's where I was going to school. And then over time, they just saw my work ethic and I was around a lot. And the head coach appreciated that. And he would give me kind of odds and end jobs to do that were football related. And eventually, you know, it was two or three years of academic GA. And then it became, okay, well, Satyan left. Do you want to be the defensive GA? Wow. And I'm still getting my doctorate, so I could still be a graduate assistant. So I was like, yeah, I'll be the defensive GA. And then that's kind of how it happens. So you've got the obstacles. And I would say for me, it's been about trying to just persist through those obstacles and really having people that would give me a helping hand, so to speak. And Al was one of those guys that helped me and said, hey, here's an opportunity. Is this something you're interested in? Absolutely. So in your work as a graduate assistant in this new role, you worked with a group they called the Fab Five. Can you speak a little bit to that experience in yeah. the context of your role? 
Yeah, so pretty much I was responsible for academic monitoring of these student athletes. Okay, and so the year before that Al got hired and we got there, they had 11 people declared academically ineligible before the first week of the season. Wow. And so in the matter of that time, we flipped the whole program and the academic profile of that program where we had some different requirements of guys. We were class checking every day, making sure our guys were meeting with their professors, getting their syllabuses and making sure they were staying on point with their work and handing in assignments. And so we had a group of five student athletes that were on the cusp of either not making it to be eligible or making it. And so that was the Fab Five. That was the Focus Five that I had to focus a lot of my attention on to help them meet the standards that they need to meet academically. And so we were able to do that within a year. And obviously we didn't have any people ineligible. We flipped the APR around and really set us up for good footings for years to come. Wow. Super interesting because I feel like sometimes people don't always realize this academic aspect of it, especially when you're coaching at the collegiate level. Can you speak to how your background in education really helped you in that respect? Yeah, well, it's certainly unique. The academic load is similar. I mean, there's no different than any student that's going to college. I mean, if they're taking freshman English, they got to do the same requirements as freshman English. And the interesting part that I learned early on, I guess, was the access point that some of these student athletes had to get to college was through their athletic prowess. Yep. And so sometimes their academics from K through 12 had failed them. So they got maybe pushed through and things like that, where it's really a disservice to these student athletes because they're at this level now and they're expected to achieve at this level, but they may not have been prepared to achieve at this level. Hmm. And so that's what we were kind of trying to help manage is help these guys understand what it meant to be a college student and the workload it required to be a college student. So with football or really with any sport or any extracurricular activity, sports in particular, there's such a load on them through that requirement. And that there's only so many hours in a day that we literally printed grid sheets of the hours by day and told them where they need to be at 6 a.m. all the way through 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. at night so they can at least organize their time to focus on football, what they need to do, and academics. Wow. And balance that and then help provide resources with the on-campus tutoring and built relationships throughout different departments around the campus to help make them aware of these tools that they had available to them for help. And so that's kind of what we did. And we set up that whole structure there for them. Yeah. It's clear that your role as an educator has made you a standout coach. And as you pointed out, it's a pretty non-traditional background relative to other coaches. Do you feel like this was a particular strength for you that helped you rise and grow through your career? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, there's a few types of educators that enter into coaching. Obviously, my background is a little bit different because of the level of education I've gotten. Yeah. And so I feel like my ability to relate and teach and communicate and bring complex ideas in a simpler way has been a little bit of my edge because I didn't have the edge of having the firsthand experience. You know, I didn't play in the NFL. Yeah. I didn't play in college. So I can't speak to that, but I can speak to what I see, how I study, how I relate to guys, how I can bring them information and teach them the game. And so I think that had to have been my way to separate myself. Absolutely. Whether you were a safety user, quality control coach, it's clear that you have to develop a very strong rapport with these players for them to not only seek you out, but respect you. What other qualities do you feel like have made you a standout coach in this respect? Yeah, I think it's, I would say my ability to communicate. I think my knowledge of the game and the ability to study the game and then the ability to bring this information to a relatable level has been kind of my way to grow and develop these relationships. I think you got to be able to instill trust with the players 
And coaching is such a dynamic profession where yeah. a lot of these guys have had so many coaches over their careers through college, high school, and in the NFL, because coaches move so often, whether they get replaced or they move on to bigger jobs. And so they're really in a short time to be able to do that and develop a level of trust that's been kind of how I've approached this profession. Yeah. What's the hardest part about coaching? You know, I don't think there's many things that are hard. Hard to me is a tricky word because it's a little bit relative. Okay. You know, what one person thinks is hard may not be hard to others. Like all my cousins, my family, they say the hours are real long and all that, which is all real. An average day in season for me would be maybe from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. Wow. That's for six months of the year. And so that's relatively hard. But to me, it's not that hard because that's what I'm passionate about and it's what I want to do. For me, the hardest thing is probably being away from family and things like that for that time. You know, I get home when my kids are in bed and my wife's in bed and I leave in the morning when they're still in bed. So I really try to cherish the time that I get with them, whether it's in the off season or on the few days a week that I get with them. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. As you pointed out, it's no secret that, especially in the early innings of the road to coaching and generally, it's long hours and often little pay at the start as well. Your parents initially hoped you'd be a doctor or professor. Can you speak to how you grappled with the realities of the job and parental expectations? Yeah, it was not easy. I mean, I would say early on, you know, I went to BU, I was pre med. You know, I graduated there in three years and I took my MCATs. Everybody was thinking I'm going to med school. Wow. And then I talked to my parents and I was like, hey, you know, I graduated in three years. Can I use this extra year to go try something else? And so they were okay with it, provided that it was just going to be the year and then we'll figure it out from there. And so that's how I ended up at Columbia and got my degree in education. And so that kind of bought me the year. And then after that year happened, kind of had the same conversation again. And I was like, okay, well... I really just like to get my doctorate and be a professor. I don't want to go to med school and be a doctor. Wow. And they were okay. And I think the selling point for them there was they still heard doctor. <laughs> and so they were okay with it. Wow. Probably not knowing, but, you know, being supportive. And so then yeah. I went to Temple to get my doctorate. And they're big sports fans anyways. Both my parents are, I mean, really supportive of me and my brother growing up. And so now I'm at Temple getting my doctorate. And then I start working with the football team. Oh, my gosh. That was just like, oh, okay, Sean's working with the football team. He's still getting his degree. He's still doing all this stuff. And I was. But then they started coming to games, and they started seeing how much I enjoyed it and really how much they enjoyed that process, too, wow. of being part of that team. And so three years later, I get my degree, and then I got a job offer at George Washington University to be a tenure-track professor, and I'm still a GA. So that became the final conversation of, hey, and I didn't speak about this before, but Al had said to me, he's like, hey, you can go take this job. It's a great job. Or you can wait six months. And if I have a job open on staff, I'll promote you. Oh, wow. So I told my parents that. And I figured at that point, might as well wait six months. I mean, nobody's going to take my doctorate away. I could pretty much sit out a year from the academic world and reapply for professor jobs a year later. Not saying I was guaranteed to get that same job. I mean, GW, that was a great job. But they were okay with it. Yeah. And so... Six months later, somebody left the staff and Al promoted me. And that's how I became, like you mentioned earlier, the special teams coordinator and linebacker coach at Temple. Wow. I'm curious, I mean, what advice do you have for young South Asians who especially are often coming from fairly risk-averse families who would struggle to make that sort of decision? I mean, it seems like so much of your career is like taking these shots, sending those emails, taking that six months to see what happened. I'm curious, you know, what your takeaways are there? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think one, 
there's no guarantee on either end. So you got to really hedge your bet and make sure that you've got a plan A and a plan B. But that doesn't mean you approach either plan with less intensity. Yeah. You know, I think it's viable to do both and get both. You know, so it was really important for me to get my doctorate because that was my passion. I want to be a professor and I still do. You know, I've done it. I enjoy teaching. It was also important for me to see if I can shoot my shot at this dream and try to coach at the highest level and explore that path. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't get my doctorate. Because yeah. that's what afforded me my opportunities in college. And then when it's time to make a decision, you got to be prepared to make that decision. Absolutely. And it may go against some things you believe in. It may require you to be a graduate assistant for another year. <laughs> it may require you to take less pay for another year. But if it's something that you really want, sometimes the resistance and the persistence is important. And you got to go through those obstacles to ultimately get to where you want to go. Absolutely. So... In 2013, you make the transition from college ball to the NFL. Did that feel like a, hey, I've made it moment? I mean, can you speak to that transition? Yeah, I would say what I've learned is, to me, I've had a few of these, hey, I've made it moments. Getting promoted at Temple was the first one, you know, okay, wow, I made it. Took me four or five years as a graduate assistant, and now I'm a coordinator in college, and then it was only a year because Al had left and I took a position off the field at the University of Miami. So then you took a step backwards again yeah. from my perspective. And then the year after that, I went to Boston College to be a running back coach and special teams corner. So again, I felt like, whew, finally, I'm out of the woodwork. I've got my access and I'm at a big time program. And then we got fired a year later. You know, so that was another, hey, I made it moment that really, <laughs> you didn't make it. And then when I got to the NFL, yeah, for sure. It was like, wow, I made it. I got this entry level position. And that's okay. My wife and I will sacrifice and we'll make it work. And usually the average lifespan, I would think, is about two to three years for a quality control job. And then you get promoted. That's like the usual track. Sure. But after two years, we got fired there again. Oh, my God. So then I had to become a quality control again for another head coach. And I did that for another three years. So all these, hey, I made it moments happened. But it was really the persistence and the support I had from my wife and my family and my kids, obviously, now to endure through those moments. Cause like you said, they were all low paying jobs. You just kind of got to grind through and everybody's sacrifice and not just me, you know, it's my wife who I'm married at the time and she's been through it all with me. So it's all of that. So when you think you made it in this profession, the profession is really humbling to let you know you haven't really quite made it yet. Wow. Super, super interesting. I mean, I feel like most professions aren't met with, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think life has peaks and valleys, but it's interesting that like every time you take 10 steps forward, you can also fall three rungs down. But I guess it shows that you really just have to have this persistence and determination to keep going. Right. And support. I will say that. And you got to be around good people that can support you. Absolutely. So Eight years later, after joining the NFL in January 2021, you become the first Indian American NFL coordinator in history. Can you tell us about what that role encompasses and what it meant to you to be the first Indian American? Yeah, well, the role is pretty much the highest role on defense that you can achieve. You're responsible for everything that's oriented on the defense, from organization to in-game play calling and preparation. So besides the defense coordinator, next job is the head coach. And so it was extremely humbling to have achieved that, especially at a franchise like the Chicago Bears, which is a historic founding franchise of the NFL. Absolutely. That organization for a long time has built its pride on defense. And I've been a part of a few great defenses there. And so it was really overwhelming, I guess, and humbling at the same time to 
earn that role. It was another wow, I made it moment because you know it was unexpected. Not that I didn't expect that or anticipate it, but you just never knew it could be a reality. Yeah. You know, you're always working towards that goal, but you just didn't know because somebody had to give you a shot at it. And that's a credit to that organization and the head coach at that time, Matt Nagy, to give me that shot. It was incredible. The whole experience, everything about the experience was incredible. And then, I, you know, it didn't really dawn on me in the moment because when you're in it, you don't really reflect sure. on being the first and yeah. sending these things and I realized quickly how important it is. And then once you're in that role and you're in that profile and then you get a lot of people reaching out to you and talking about the importance of it. And even your kids who are of age now to understand that kind of stuff, it made it pretty special. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it seems like I said, you've been this epic role model for so many young South Asians who have this passion for sports, but it's obviously not a field that we're often encouraged to pursue or feel like we can pursue. And you actually shared this story a few years ago about your son who was four years old at the time and he asked you and your wife if he could paint his skin white so that he could be a professional baseball player because he had never seen an Indian in that position before. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it was as a parent to hear those words. Can you speak to that experience and what it's meant to you to be as a result, such a critical role model for South Asians everywhere? Yeah, you know, you're right. (laughs) What you learn in parenting is there's a lot of unexpected things that happen. There's nothing like that that can really prepare you for feeling a question or a comment like that. And it's so innocent. And baseball in particular, such a diverse sport. And even most sports are pretty diverse in terms of the player clientele. But he still felt he didn't feel an Indian there, you know, regardless of the diversity of the players that were in there. That's how he felt. And you're not wrong to feel whatever you are feeling at four years old. Yeah. You know, so you got to acknowledge that feeling. And you kind of just got to show them the opportunities that there are available. And then really those opportunities got to come with hard work and persistence and setting himself apart. If you want to be a baseball player at four, then he's got to work to be a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. You don't just become a baseball player. You know, you don't just become a coach. You don't just become whatever profession you're going to be in, particularly if you're going to be unique in that profession. That just doesn't happen. You know, you got to put in some time and some effort and focus work at it. And so that's kind of how we talk to him about it and say, well, that's okay that nobody looks like you, but... It doesn't mean that you can't do it. Yeah. You know, some of those stories made my role a little bit more special when you're able to reflect on it. But again, you try not to think about much of it because when you're in that role, you're just trying to be really good at that role and really keep the role. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I appreciate you sharing that. As you mentioned, like the NFL and a lot of these sports leagues are incredibly diverse in terms of the player composition. But What responsibility do you think the national leagues have to improving diversity in their ranks? I mean, what do you think it's going to take? Yeah, I think it takes unique leadership. I think things always start from the top. And all of these leagues, and I can speak really particularly on the NFL, they're really making concerted efforts to try to improve the profile and the look of how their leaders are. And so it starts with, obviously, the commissioner and the league office and the ownership. These are the people that run these teams and they're, it's their babies and yeah. they take a lot of pride in running their teams. And it's really about giving opportunity and access and exposing themselves to different types of people that are qualified. You know, you're not talking about hiring unqualified people. Yeah, you're talking about giving opportunities to people that are qualified. And then it's on the people, people like myself or whoever are interviewing for these opportunities to really earn those jobs with a quality interview and doing good work and having a good resume to make it hard for somebody to say no to you. And I think these leagues are trending that way. That's great to hear. 
I'm curious, I mean, do you feel like, you know, you talk about how your unique background as an educator and having such an advanced degree set you apart. Do you feel like people who aren't typically in these roles, like South Asians and other people of color, have to go that extra mile to really set themselves apart? I don't know if they need to go with the academic background, but I think people need to go the extra mile in general, whatever it is, whether it's your work ethic, your quality of your work, the way you present yourself. And, you know, I don't know if that's fair or not, but I think that's just the reality that you may have to do a little bit extra. And I think that's okay. You know, I think you've got to embrace that. And that's what helps break down barriers because once you set yourself apart and you're in some of those roles, you've just created opportunity for other people to be in those roles. Absolutely. And I think that's what's important because over time, the reality is everybody still wants qualified, hardworking people that they feel in, in professional sports that can win. And so when you're given that opportunity, uh, obviously you've earned it because of your qualification and everything, but then you got to win yeah. and you got to hold that opportunity. And then once you do that, you've created more leverage and power for yourself to open up doors for other people. Yeah. It's awesome because it's so clear that you have this very excited, competitive spirit, but some people sometimes struggle with that, you know, at having that quarter of their role. Like, how have you thought about that, you know, staying competitive, maintaining that drive, persevering in the more difficult moments? Yeah, I think it started, like I said earlier in this conversation, when we grew up, Yeah, it was kind of just embedded with us. And to this day, you know, me and my cousins are competitive <laughs> in kind of anything that we do. And so that's kind of how we were raised. And I think it's okay to have a little bit of healthy competition for somebody like me. It kind of drives me. Yeah. As long as it's healthy and productive and you're moving towards progress to better yourself or the person you're competing against, I think that's how we get better. And you got to have something that drives you and that keeps pushing you to improve. Absolutely. And whether you call it competition or self-motivation, whatever it is, the end result is still you're trying to improve yourself. Yeah. So I want to stay on the topic of representation and diversity in the league because in 2020, following the death of George Floyd, you penned a very powerful op-ed in The Athletic voicing support for Black Lives Matter and talking about your experience in the league. In recent years, there's also been a lot of conversation and controversy about football players kneeling during the national anthem, most notably with Colin Kaepernick. I'm curious if you'd be willing to expand on your thoughts on this and the racial dynamics you've seen in the league, especially after George Floyd's murder. Yeah. Uh, You know, I thought like that letter that I wrote was obviously came from a place of emotion. It came from a place of a lot of mental reflection and emotional reflection at a time that, you know, I thought our country is still reeling and we're still at a point where we're trying to figure things out as a whole, yep. as our country, particularly along racial lines. And you see it exacerbated through political lines and a lot of different things, women's rights yeah. and all these things that people are fighting for. And I felt for me, the point I was in my career, the point I was as a parent and a husband and the platform I had, it was important for me to show my support and let people know where I stood on it. And It was a personal decision, and I credit the McCaskey family, who are the owners of the Bears, to allow me that opportunity to make a personal plea as I did. And I think that's important because I think everybody needs to be able to feel comfortable with how they feel and how they want to express their feelings and their thoughts in a respectful way. And that's really what I did with that letter. Yeah, I appreciate it a ton because I think it's important that when possible, we use our privilege to speak up. Yeah, no doubt. I agree. And I think there's so many people that have different privileges. And that's what I tried to touch on in that letter, regardless of your race or your background. Everybody's got a privilege in different settings. 
Yeah. And like you said, if you have an opportunity to use that privilege and help others or shine light on other issues, then why not? What are you leveraging your privilege for then? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, you've spent over a decade in this world and you've worked with five different teams, three collegiate, two pro. Do you have any particularly memorable experiences or games that you can highlight? Oh, yeah. Let's see. In college at Temple, we were on the receiving end of uh, what was, I think it eventually became the SB Top Play of the Year Award, where we lost a game on a Hail Mary in the last second. So that was, you know, an experience for sure that persisted through ESPN's awards and everything <laughs> like that. So it persisted for a long time there. Uh, you had to relive that. Um, but, you know, it was really special for us to make a bowl game. We hadn't done that in 30 years yeah. at Temple to kind of what I talked about early in this conversation of flipping that program around, the culture of that program. They were thinking about cutting the program. Oh, wow. And then in about five years, we were able to make a bowl game. And so that was a pretty special experience. And then getting to the NFL, one of the more special years for me in my career had been the 2018 season for us, where we had the best defense in the NFL. And it, it had a different feeling. You had a different aura around the way the guys operated, the way the coaches operated. And it was pretty special. And obviously the season got cut short by the another famous double doink that we lost in the playoffs to the Eagles. But what you learn in this profession is it's hard to win and it's hard to sustain winning. You got to be able to cherish the wins and really grow and learn from the losses. And you got to be able to do it quickly because you're evaluated again next week. <laughs> wow. And then when you have an opportunity to win and you have an opportunity to build something special, you got to ride that wave as long as you can because it's a challenge and you got to be up for the challenge every year because it's different and new. Absolutely. You've cultivated such a range of experiences as a coach and through your coaching journey. Can you speak to the different roles you've held and which ones you've enjoyed in particular? Yeah. You know, I started as an academic graduate assistant, so I'll just list the roles I've been. I've been an academic graduate assistant, a defensive graduate assistant, a special teams graduate assistant, a outside linebacker coach, special teams coordinator, running back coach, defensive quality control, safeties coach, and defensive coordinator. And now the uh, associate head coach of defense for the Seahawks, where I'm currently at. So those are all the roles I've been in. And I would say this, and I don't mean this lightly, all of those roles have kind of really helped shape me and help me gain perspective to what I'm doing now. Even the assist, I forgot this one, the assistant director of football operations at Miami. <laughs> All of those roles have given me a different light because my goal has always been to be a head coach. Yep. That was when I had started. I always want to be a head coach and see if I can succeed. And I never thought it would take me into the NFL and the journey would take me all these ways. But upon reflection, all of those opportunities have shed light into what I think it takes to be a better head coach. Because I've learned the organization from so many different levels and I haven't taken the typical climb. And so I think all those have been important for that. The other thing I will say is it's been really important for me. I think I've become a better coach because I've coached on all three sides of the ball. I've coached on offense, I've coached on defense, and I've coached special teams. Yeah. And I think that has given me greater perspective to really learn football. And I think that's made me a better defensive coach because I've coached running backs. Yeah. And I can relate to a lot of different players because I've coached special teams. So if I have recommendations and advice for others, I would say you got to try to take all those experiences. You got to, yeah. if you have an opportunity, there's a good coach around you that you want to learn from, you got to go ahead and do it. And you got to get to the other side of the ball and do it and learn it and just grow your knowledge base. Yeah. 
It's clear you're very good at what you do. And over the years, you've actually earned this nickname, the Bulldog. <laughs> Can you tell me the origin story there? Yeah. So the origin there is at Temple University in 2006 and seven, when I became an academic graduate assistant, our offensive coordinator there is the late George DeLeon, who's a dear mentor of mine and who had just passed recently. And he's as stereotypical, whatever you think or imagine as an old school football coach. <laughs> Gruff around the edges, smart, has a raspy voice, all that stuff. And so he was my first exposure to one of these guys like, whoa, wow, there's a guy that does this, really. <laughs> and so his nickname for me was the Bulldog because he said, I need to be a Bulldog to get the Fab Five going, to make sure that they were on point and doing their things. And so he was the one who coined that nickname. And so that stuck with me at Temple. And then pretty much at each of the locations I've been, I've had different nicknames that have stuck <laughs> at those locations. What are the different nicknames? <laughs> so Temple was the Bulldog. Miami was still some Temple people there. So that continued to be the Bulldog. And then Doc and Professor. So it got to Professor at Boston College and then Doc in the NFL. Wow. I love it. I love it. Very fitting. <laughs> so having worked with these different teams, I imagine to a degree it's gut-wrenching to leave any team and these players, you know, and staff that you've grown close to. How have you navigated that while also considering these necessary moves to progress your career? So sometimes you don't have an option. Yeah. Sometimes it's the organization tells you to leave and they fire you and you got to go find another job. And every transition has been hard. When you're younger, and it was just me and my wife, it was pretty exciting because we got to live in different parts of the country and explore different things. And now, <laughs> after I've been in Chicago for nine years and we just moved to Seattle seven months ago, and I got a nine-year-old, a six-year-old will be seven here in a month, and my daughter will be two here in two weeks. Oh, you wow. learn how hard it can be yeah. <laughs> for children when you're moving your family. So we've been going through that, and it's been great. The boys and my daughter have been great. My wife's been amazing as always. But, you know, we had set a lot of roots in Chicago and we didn't anticipate, like I told you earlier, when I got that job in 2013, we thought it was going to be two or three years, like all my other jobs had been. Yeah. And we ended up there for nine years with three head coaches and three coordinators and a lot of transition, but the mainstay was us. And so this has been the biggest move since then. And it's been fun. It's not easy, especially for the kids and my wife, but it's kind of what we signed up for. And We've been blessed that we were at Chicago for so long because a lot of our peers are still on the two to three year cycles. Wow. You know, when you go to a new organization, sort of lateraling in or progressing in your career, there's so many dynamics at play because you have to fit yourself into this organization where a lot of people already know each other and there's these existing dynamics. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a balance of you obviously want to be yourself and let the people there know what your personality is and who you are. And you got to be respectful of the culture that's existing. That's what you signed up for. You signed up for going into this culture and this work environment. Yeah. And you got to be really cognizant and respectful of that. And you hope that you've signed up for an environment that's conducive to your beliefs and aligns with your values and beliefs. And sometimes you don't. Fortunately for me, I have. Yeah. And I'm lucky that I've been able to do that. But other times, and I have peers and things like that, where you walk into a place and you're maybe you don't fit in as well. And yeah. regardless of that, it's still your job and you have a job to do and you've got to make sure you do your job to the best of your ability. Absolutely. And so this experience for us has been the newest one because the other ones at Chicago, everybody else was moving in and I was the holdover. Yeah. So that's a whole nother set of 
uh, things because you thought you had a culture that you were part of and now it's a new culture because it's a new head coach and a new staff and new people, but you're still in the same office and you're still doing similar work. So that's another dynamic for sure where you got to quickly, almost like a chameleon, try to blend in and buy into the new thing, even though the old thing was what got deemed not working and they fired the old staff Yeah, and you're part of the old staff. So that becomes unique. Super, super interesting. In some ways, it's obviously akin to anyone making a major job transition, but it's clear there's other dynamics at play just given the nature of your role and the types of organizations you're fitting into. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously athletics, there's a lot of egos in this profession, (laughs) including my own. And so that's something you got to be really aware of and how you manage your own ego along with others. Looking back, is there anything you would change about your journey to coaching? Wow. You know, I don't think so, because I think you always wish, especially in the moment that I climbed faster or I earned these jobs quicker, even the ones I felt like I was passed over for, for a variety of reasons. But here I am at 39 years old and I'm in a great organization. I've been a coordinator in this league and hope to be one again. And all those experiences have made me the person I am and the coach I am. So I don't think I would. You know, I mean, I know in the moment I would have. I wish that things would have happened differently financially and professionally, but it is what it is. And right now it's about what I can do now and what I can control. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a version of you that's looking back at the football player at Shelton High School and (laughs) thinking, wow, look at me now. Yeah, well, that's funny. So I just went back to Connecticut a few months ago to get some award locally. And it brought back a lot of those memories of me playing at the high school and things like that. And it was a dream back then to be able to do that. So I wouldn't have imagined that I would be where I was and where I am currently, but I'm blessed to be there. And so we're going to continue to ride this wave as long as we can. Absolutely. And I can tell you that I and everyone listening is going to be looking forward to it. The last question I have for you is it's fair to assume you're headed straight to the top. I mean, you've talked about your goal of becoming a head coach someday. We hear a lot about legendary coaches. Are there any that you'd like to model your career after? Or how are you just thinking about this journey ahead? Oh my gosh. I have taken something from pretty much every coach that I've been a part of, good or bad. And I think that's really unique. I've learned, I've been a part of failing organizations and teams. I've been a part of really good teams. And so I've kind of learned the whole gamut from my perspective of what it takes to win at this level and really at any level in college as well. To me, it's just about gaining those experiences and leveraging those to really build kind of my own brand of who I want to be. One thing I have learned is I can't be anybody else. Yeah. And if I ever get a chance to be a coordinator or be a head coach or be in any role, I got to be Sean Desai first and then use all the people that have helped me and the experiences I've gained to leverage that. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. And I mean, there's so many great coaches. And quite honestly, I'm with one right now and Pete Carroll, who his last 20 years of coaching have been legendary. Yeah. And so that was such a big draw for me to be around somebody that I've studied from afar and take this year especially to really learn a different perspective of way of doing things. And so far, the experience has been unimaginable. Oh. Well, a huge congrats to you on this new role. So, so excited to see where your journey takes you. And thank you so much for sharing your story on Trailblazers today. Like I said, I think it's such a point of inspiration for so many young South Asians who 
for them, sports is this, I think as you've put it once before, this currency in feeling American and growing up as the child of immigrants and sort of this bonding factor. So it's amazing to see the journey that you've charted and I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you so much for giving me this platform. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.